All right, so we have a ladies' gathering that I was just informed of that's not in your bulletin. That uh, is April 18th, uh, March 18th, okay? Yeah, we probably should have that in the bulletin then. Uh, March 18th is the ladies' movie, uh, and you need to see April um, by basically the end of this weekend if you would like to have tickets purchased for yourself to go see that. I think they're going to see Like I Can Only Imagine or something like that, one of the new movies that are out. Uh, so please, uh, uh, ladies, if you have any interest in uh, going uh, for that day, uh, please get with her and uh, let her know so that we can make sure that we have tickets uh, available for that Um that means that uh, guys, we get to uh, we get to watch the children, so our wives can have a day out. Um, and since it is, I believe, on a Sunday, we can make them all work because it is the first day of the week. So hallelujah! All right, I'll put my Pentecostal back into the box. Uh, today we have guest speaker Ryan White from Rooted in Tour Ministries all the way from um, the Minnesota area with his, uh, his wonderful sons and his wife. They are here. Um, they've been uh, hanging out with my family for a couple of days and been a huge blessing. And I do believe uh, the message today is going to be a huge blessing as well. And so uh, we're very blessed to have Ryan with us. Also want to let you know that Ryan is going to be at Bet on Me this afternoon as well. And so won't be teaching the same teaching. So um, if you have no other plans for Shabbat, we definitely want to encourage you to uh, go on up into OKC and uh, continue the Shabbat fellowship with Better Me, and uh, he'll be teaching there. I believe worship starts at three. Is that correct? Uh, at Better Me, worship starts at three, and then they'll have a teaching after that. And so, um, you know, if you need, uh, if you have questions or anything, please come see one of the leadership. We'll help. Uh, help you find where it's at. Otherwise, Google is really, really good at knowing where we are and where we're supposed to be at all points in time. Um, I want to go over a couple of other things we've got coming up. We've got Passover coming up here in a couple of weeks. Shavuot um, at the NCED Conference Center. Uh, for more information, it's ShavuotEvent.com. We're going to have uh, guest speakers in. Rico Cortez is going to be in, as well as Chris Knight, Monty Judo. A lot of different teachers are going to be in for that, as well as worship leaders uh, for the weekend. Um, it's a fantastic time. This is the third year that we have done that. Uh, and so... Um, make plans. You can get more information, ShavuotEvent.com. Tabernacles, I know it's a long way away, but considering the fact that our uh, our camp always fills up very quickly, I want to definitely let you know about Tabernacles. In fact, I think there was already uh, somewhere between 150 and 200 people who had signed up in less than a week for the Feast of Tabernacles already. And so that is in Chandler, Oklahoma. Um, it is a it is a eight-day camping trip uh, that we do around the Feast of Sukkot. Coat. Um, if you've never been to Lion and Lamb's Tabernacles, I do recommend that you go. I am also biased because I am the operations manager who helps run the event. But I can tell you that I've been to a lot of different Feast of Tabernacles. And as far as amenities and, and fellowship and things for your children and stuff like that, there's really nothing like it. And so uh, we've got new expanded youth programs, young adults, college and career, all kinds of cool things. So um, 
going to be an exciting year and definitely want to have you put that on your calendar. That's Tabernacles event. See, there's a theme. Just think of the, the feast and put event after it. And that's the website. Um, and so want to let you know about that. Uh, you can find out more information in regards to that feast. Um, tomorrow morning at the Lion and Lamb studio, which is uh, right off of Industrial Boulevard off of Flood, uh, the men's prayer breakfast will be at 9 a.m. Now that is 9 a.m. once you spring your clocks forward because you are supposed to spring your clocks forward over the evening time tonight. So, um, you know, this kind of one of the benefits of having the Shabbat is that, uh, you know, a lot of people will only be showing up for service and not Sunday school tomorrow. But hey, today we, uh, we don't have to worry about that, uh, that nice little issue. Um, ladies prayer meeting is March 25th at the Frickers home. Um, and Brian and Roxanne Frick, Fricker will be hosting the ladies prayer meeting. That's the 25th at 10 AM. Once again, all, all this and more is in our bulletins out there as well as on our website, uh, which is brand new. It's about a week and a half, two weeks old. Um, and so it has a lot of that information. Also want to inform you, there's been a lot of requests for these and we've spent a lot of time talking about these, but want to remind you that our small groups and home Bible studies are starting. There is information on the websites for that as well as in the bulletin. They are starting the foster family. Um, are going to be hosting a married couples home group. Uh, any of you who have met the Fosters know that this is going to be a fantastic time. Lots of fun, lots of laughter, but a lot of serious, serious conversation, serious prayer, and serious growth. So if you want to take your marriage to the next level, doesn't matter whether you're newly married or you've been married for a long time, then come see the Fosters. Uh, that is going to be on Saturday the 10th, which is today, tonight. So tonight, so, um, you know, for those of you who procrastinate, you can't procrastinate much more. It's tonight. You still got a couple of hours to procrastinate, but then you need to be there. Um, the single woman's Bible study on the book of Ruth is hosted by Amber Thornborough. Her and her family are still on their family vacation. And so she is not here today. Uh, but that will be meeting this Tuesday at 7 p.m. Uh, and then the book of James uh, study is going to be at the Frickers home. And that is this Thursday evening is the first one. And then uh, the, the study of the book of Jude and learning how to study the scriptures and kind of walk through uh, the various forms, Hebrew words, Greek words, all, all the different elements of learning how to study the Bible. Uh, that's going to be hosted by Stephen and Leisha Drews, as well as uh, co-hosted by Carlos and Lynn Drosher. And uh, that's going to be the first and third Saturday of every month at 6 p.m. And that will be starting on the 17th, which is next Shabbat, correct? All right. So see, I, I got that right. But that's because James helped me out because I was going to say it was next Shabbat for his. And so, you know, it all put together. Let's go ahead. Let's stand up. Let's greet everybody. Uh, say Shabbat Shalom. If you're new here, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are a family-friendly place. And so uh, we're, we're glad to see all the children. And we're going to get into prayer and worship here in just a couple of minutes.
how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Behold how good it is. Hallelujah. You know, one of the greatest things is to hear the laughter and the chit-chat of the fellowship because, you know, unfortunately, there's not a lot of people who keep the Shabbat around the world. It's growing. The Lord's doing amazing things. But, but it's exciting. It's exciting to see new faces. It's exciting to see the fellowship, the friendships, the lives that are being developed. Hallelujah. All right, if I can have uh, Brian Fricker, uh, the Fosters, and Roxanne, who is here as well. If I can have her as well. If I can have Carlos and Lynn. And uh, I don't think I've seen Stephen and Alicia yet. But um, if we can have you guys come on up. We're going to go ahead and pray over you guys um, before we start these small groups this week. We definitely, we definitely cannot pray enough. We can definitely not lift up our fellow brothers enough. And when you step out to do a home Bible study in a small group, the Lord has to be the guide, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. So we're going to go ahead as elders and we're going to pray over you guys. set apart time on the Shabbat, Father. We just thank you for these families, Father. We thank you for their dedication and their heart for you, Father. We thank you for their love for your word, Father, the love for your son, Yeshua, Hamashiach. Father, we thank you that they heeded the Holy Spirit to step out, Father, and to lead a small group in their home, Father, we thank you, Father, that they listened and that their hearts are longing to serve you. Father, as we go this week and we start these home fellowships and these times of gathering, Father, we ask that you would, you would continue to prepare the hearts of the people and the leaders, prepare their homes, Father, prepare the words that they would say. Father, anoint them to the task. Give them peace. Father, it's been my experience that when we step out for you, the adversary wants to test us. He wants to try us. Father, we ask that you would already thwart the plans of the adversary, that you would defeat him in his tracks, Father, and that you would raise them high on eagle's wings. They would soar. That the Ruach HaKodesh would move within them and that the armor of God would be upon them. Father, for those who will come, Father, to be a part of this, we ask, Father, that you would already be moving in their hearts and that the testimonies that would come from these small groups, Father, would bring honor and glory to you and you alone, Father. That lives would be changed, that hearts would be reignited towards the passion of you, Father, and all the beauty that you are. You are Kadosh, Father, Kadosh. Father, we thank you for the Fricker family. We thank you for the Fosters. We thank you for the Droshers. We thank you for the Drews. We thank you for the Thornboroughs, Father. And Father, we ask that this week you would just pour out your blessing upon them. 
for it's in the name of Yeshua we humbly ask these things. Amen and amen. simply grip the Bible with just his little finger and his thumb. And let me ask you, how good a grip is that? Not very good. So I could, I could take it out of your hands pretty easy, couldn't I? So the question I have for you this morning is, how is your grip on God's Word? Okay? The purpose of these small groups is to help you build a strong grip on God's Word. So no matter which group you go to, it's there to help you build a better grip on God's Word. Thank you. All right. As we get ready for the service, we need to prepare our hearts. We need to set aside all the things that are out there in the world and realize that we've come into uh, God's place. We're here uh, to listen to what God has to say to us this morning through our speaker to give him the praise and the glory that is due as we sing. Uh, there's a couple of prayer requests that I know about. I know that uh, Daniel needs a, where are you Daniel, needs a job right there. Daniel, can you stand up for me real quick? Yeah. All right. Y'all need to be praying for Daniel. He's, he's still looking for employment and uh, it's been a long time since he lost his job. And, uh, and we really need to pray that God provides an employment for him and provides for his family. Uh, so let's go, to, let's go to, the, to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for this Shabbat that we can come and praise your name, spend time with you, to give you the honor that you're due. Thank you that you have given us this day, that you have set it aside, especially for us to do just that. And I thank you that your throne is open all the time to us. And we can come boldly before your throne anytime and give you the prayer request and that, that, uh, that we have, that you put on our hearts, that we can come before your throne and we can praise you at any time. So I would pray this morning, especially for Daniel, that you would provide for him and his family. You have said in your word that he, it is the man who is responsible to provide for his family. And so we pray for them and ask that you would 
do just that so that Daniel can be the man that you have called him to be in, in your word. We thank you for the other prayer requests that we've been praying for and your answers to them. We pray this morning for those who are leading us in our praise time. they may truly lead us as we praise God. And I pray for each of us that we might open up our hearts and minds, that we might be free in here to praise him as God leads us, to not be afraid to stand up and clap, to dance for the Lord. pray for Ryan as he comes to give us your message this morning. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has been preparing him for this morning and that you have given him your message to give to us. And I pray that we would also open up our hearts to, to hear that message this morning and to respond to it as you would have us to do. Holy, holy, holy are you Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. With all creation, we praise you, King of Kings. You are our everything, and we will adore you. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Would you please stand with us? Blessed be your glorious name. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, but blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. I will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. Will choose to say, Blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Thank you. 
Come today, there's no reason to wait. Yeshua is calling. Thank you. 
took wonder at the mention of your Yeshua, your name is power, breath and living water, such a marvelous mystery. Kadosh, Kadosh, blessed are you. For Father, there is none like you. There is none like you in all of creation. The giver of life, our helper, savior, shield, blessed are you. For Father, you have done so many wonderful things in this community, Father. It would have been sufficient, Father. But you continue to pour them out and pour them out. Your provision, your blessing, your healing, Father. You are the provider of all good. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. For you prepare the table, Father, before us in the presence of our enemies. Father, anoint our heads with oil. For Father, you alone are worthy of all our praise. Hallelujah. Father, on the Shabbat, we thank you for all the provisions, Father. That we would even have a place to come when there are so many who do not have a place to gather, Father. For the ability, Father, to put this on the internet for those who have no fellowship. You are worthy, Father. You are holy. In Yeshua's name, we humbly come before you on the Sabbath day. Amen and amen. All right, if we can have all of the, uh, all the young ones up here. We're going to have to start like having some sort of like HFF prize or something because every week it's like a mad race. It's almost like Mario Kart to see who can get up here. And I will tell you, we, we searched far and wide for the largest single tallit that we could find and had it shipped in directly from Israel and it's still not big enough. <laughs> The blessings are overflowing. Overflowing. All right. Let's bless all these little ones to this Shabbat. Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day and we thank you, Lord, for each and every one of these beautiful children that are before us here. We thank you, Lord, for blessing our community and our fellowship with great abundance, Lord and for the unmerited favor and grace that each and every one of these children represent in our families and in our lives. Father, we thank you for bestowing upon us, the parents and the elders, the honor, Lord, of raising up this next generation to be righteous sons and daughters before you. Father, for, I pray that you would give us the words of wisdom to speak life into them each and every time that we can show them something of your glory. For any parent, father, mother, give us the encouragement and the energy, Lord, to keep up with them at times. Thank you for the elders, Lord, for all of us that have an opportunity to speak. I pray that it would be your words and your wisdom that we would impart upon them. So, Father, I pray that you make the sons to be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Make them fruitful and multiply as they will grow to one day be leaders of their own homes. And Father, we pray that you make the daughters to be as Ruth and as Esther and make them righteous daughters of Zion, Lord, and may your words of kindness and your mitzvot be in their mouths at all times. So we pray that you turn your face toward them, that you lift up your countenance upon them, and that you give them peace. We thank you, Lord, for all of these blessings on the Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.
Thankfully, that was only a Sabbath day journey because that thing was heavy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, from Minnesota, where it was cold and snowy, all the way to Plains of Oklahoma, where in one day we will have cold, snowy, sun, tulips, death of the tulips, and then regrowth of the tulips, Mr. Ryan White. Thank you very much. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Thank you guys for having me out here. It's a very, very big honor to be here in this amazing building you guys got. The Lord's really blessed you guys with uh, a nice place to be able to gather. Today, I want to go over something that has been near and dear to me that God's put on my heart for a while now, and that is a big fish and a Galilean wheat field. Because what's better than a big fish in a Galilean wheat field, right? I, the Lord's really been leading me down a journey and showing me that, especially in our movement, we've kind of lost touch with the Gospels. We've lost touch with who Yeshua really is. And we've been looking at him through the lens of the Torah and the lens of Judaism often. And one of the things that really kind of scares me is when we decide we're going to measure Yeshua based on the definitions that modern Judaism has for who the Messiah is. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of wonderful and great and powerful and amazing things that we can learn from our Jewish brothers. But they don't have our Messiah. And that's very key. And so when I've, I've gone, and the Lord's really impressed me to start, to start over, to go into the Gospels, and I've done what I've called the Gospel Cycle. I've taken the, the four Gospels in the book of Acts and split them up so we can go over those in an, on an annual basis. And I've been recording videos for these, and I've been studying in depth, and it's amazing the amount of information there when you, you rather than just read it, you dig in. You study, you look at why things are being said. When there's a quote or an allusion back to the Hebrew Bible, go back and look it up and read the whole chapter. There's some amazing stuff there. So with that in mind, I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At this time, Yeshua went through the grain field on the Shabbat, and his disciples were hungry. And so they decided they were going to pluck some grain heads and eat them. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Shabbat. Now, I know as soon as you guys read that, the very first question that probably entered your head was, what are a bunch of Pharisees doing hanging out in a Galilean wheat field on Shabbat? How many of you thought that? <laughs> Those are the questions we need to ask. We need to, to constantly be asking our Bible, why is this detail being put in here? How does this speak to me? What's going on here? Why are there, I mean, uh, when I read this now, I just imagine the Pharisees and they're down below the wheat and all of a sudden they just kind of rise up slowly. Yeah. What are you doing? You're plucking grain 
on Shabbat. How dare you? So what are they doing here? Well, as we read through the Gospel of Matthew and through the rest of the Gospels, we see that they got a little bit of a problem with Yeshua. It's like, not only did he not accept him as Messiah, they're angry about what he is doing. They're so angry that ultimately they conspire with the Sadducees to have him put to death. Now, you gotta realize, you don't talk to the Sadducees if you're Pharisees. They hated them. Less than 100 years before, there had been a civil war between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it ended with the crucifixion of 800 Pharisees. We gotta know our history to see what's really going on here. The fact that those two groups conspire is really telling. And I love Yeshua's response to their question. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Shabbat. So where would we go? We would wanna go back to Deuteronomy, right? And start arguing. But Yeshua doesn't pull out his Strong's Concordance. He doesn't pull out a, a you know, whiteboard and start doing Hebrew word pictures and Paleo Hebrew and all this stuff. He doesn't even go to Deuteronomy. He doesn't go to the Torah at all. Instead, he starts talking about a narrative. Look at what David did. Look at what the priests do. And then connects that with the will of God. God requires mercy, not sacrifice. Do you see what he did there? He used the entire Bible, not just focusing on, on the little text. And sometimes we get a little bit too wrapped up in only looking at what the words there say and then trying to look behind them going, oh, well, I need to go to the Hebrew or the Greek or, and all this stuff. And we forget that the Bible is a story and that it's supposed to be understood as a whole. You see, if you wanna understand how do you keep the Sabbath, you don't go and just get, dig deep in just the places that talk about how to keep the Sabbath. You go and look at how do people keep the Sabbath. And not all narratives are about how to do it. Sometimes it's how not to do things, right? The Pharisees have a problem. And the very next episode, and this is where, uh, when you're reading through, especially the Gospels, but really anywhere, pay attention to what goes around these verses, right? So the very next episode, he goes and enters, it says, their synagogue. And there, there's a man who's got a withered hand, and they're going to ask him again, oh, is it lawful to heal on the Shabbat? Now, for those of us living in the 21st century, we, we kind of go, that's kind of weird, right? But it was a huge issue in the first century. The Pharisees had two houses, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. The house of Shammai was a very strict, uh, you could say very conservative movement within Judaism. And they were so strict and so conservative with their Sabbath keeping that they did not allow healing on the Sabbath. In fact, you can go and read in the Tosefta, they didn't even allow you for you to pray for the sick on Sabbath. You couldn't even pray for your sick brother. You gotta wonder, I mean, like, are they worried that God's gonna have to heal him and you know, break his own Sabbath? What's going on here? You notice that Yeshua does a lot of his healing on what day of the week? On the Sabbath. Because, you see, they didn't, they didn't think he of himself had power. They, they recognized that he is a conduit for God's power. 
So if he heals someone, it's ultimately really God healing that person. And if he asks that this person be healed and they're healed, that shows that God is approving of him. That's what these, these, these miracles weren't just for the sake of having compassion on these people. They were signs to everyone. If this guy is legit, he will be able to heal people on the Sabbath because that means God is approving of him. And you notice right there in verse 14, after he heals this person on the Sabbath, the Pharisees went out to conspire against him how to destroy him. So don't you dare heal someone on the Sabbath, but it's okay on the Sabbath to hide out in Galilean wheat fields to accuse people and to also conspire on how to put an innocent man to death because he's healing people. Why were they so upset about him healing people though? Have you ever wondered that? What made them so upset? You would think that they would be excited. I mean, here's this guy who all his life he couldn't walk and now he's walking and praise God, right? They were angry about it though. And so we go a little bit further down in this chapter, down to verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees come up to him and they're saying, teacher, we wish to sh you to show us a sign. And you're thinking, wait a minute, it wasn't enough of a sign that he healed people, that he raised the dead, that he's doing all these things, that's not enough of a sign. There's an issue going on, and it really is brought out in his response here. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And we go, aha, I know this one, right? Three days and three nights. He's going to die, be buried, and resurrect on the third day, and we got it, right? That's all that Jonah was about. No. I'm going to propose to you that's part of the sign, but there's an even bigger sign Bringing, being brought forward from the book of Jonah. Because look what he says this after this. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So there's more to the Jonah story than just that big fish. That's what we all focus on, right? Because that's cool. A fish swallowing someone. And we, we like to, you know, oh, he went down and he died and we see all these things. Let's back up a little bit before this, okay? Jonah is told to go where? He's told to go to Nineveh. Now, we're not told anything about Nineveh because the audience is expected to know who Nineveh or where Nineveh is and what Nineveh is. Nineveh wasn't just a random city where they slap people with fishes, some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Nineveh was in the heart of the Assyrian Empire. In fact, it was the capital of Assyria. Now, that's extremely important history. Why? Because who were the Assyrians? The Assyrians were the northern neighbor of Israel. And if you remember, those 10 northern tribes had a little bit of dealing with them. There was war, constant war, and they eventually get captured and taken into exile. But when we go back and we actually look at who the Assyrians were historically, we see an even more grim picture appear. 
the Assyrians weren't like the Babylonians. The Assyrians were more like ISIS or North Korea. They were terrorists. They didn't just go in and capture people. They would chop off body parts or gouge out eyes or do these horrific things to them. Can you imagine if you're laying in your bed and all of a sudden the Lord speaks to you and he says, hey, I want you to get up and I want you to go preach to ISIS or to North Korea or to Iran. Tell them to repent or I'm gonna destroy them. What are you gonna do? <laughs> you're gonna pull out your map and go, oh, I'm pretty sure ISIS is in Alaska now, so I'm gonna go there. <laughs> and that's what Jonah did. He's like, ah, nope, I know who these people are. And moreover, I don't want God to forgive them. I want them to be burned. And so he gets on this boat, and we know the story. There's a storm arises, and they cast lots, and they find out who it is. And he finally is like, okay, it's me. Throw me in. He gets swallowed by a fish. But there's something interesting here. Because of this episode, these sailors on the ship, who are non-Israelites, they see the power of God in this episode. Just the very, I mean, no, it, it doesn't say that Jonah preached them. He didn't t teach them the Torah. He didn't do anything. Just the very fact that by throwing him in the water, the storm subsided, they recognized the power of God. And it says that the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Except for here's the issue. Where are they right now? They're on a wooden boat in the middle of the ocean. How many of you ever offered a sacrifice on a wooden boat in the middle of the ocean? How well does that go over? You see the faithfulness here. These people are so willing to turn to God over just this one sign. They were hungry for it. They were waiting for it. But historically, Israel never brought it to the nations. You see, God didn't create Israel to be a people who hid out in the middle of nowhere and escaped and waited until the new creation. In fact, if you look geographically, where the land of Israel was in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was the land bridge between Egypt and Mesopotamia. If you wanted to trade, you went down through Israel or up through Israel. He put them right smack in the center of that. And when he called Abraham out of the nations, he didn't say, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna save you and no one else. He said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God created a people, not to save that people, but th so that through that people, the rest of the world could be saved. That mission hasn't changed today. We aren't just the saved people. We are the people through whom the world will be saved. We've got a mission. We're there, here on this earth to bear fruit. But Jonah wasn't having it. Jonah wasn't having it. He gets thrown in this, this fish, and there he cries out to God, and you know, he, he seems to be, have a, a religious conversion, if you will. I mean, change of heart in the fish, but we quickly learned that this isn't what's going on. Jonah goes, he, he arose, he goes to Nineveh, 
It's an extremely great city. Three days walk, right? Huge, huge city. 120,000 people there. And he goes around, even though he thinks he's going to die, even though he doesn't want them to repent, and he preaches, you guys are all going to be destroyed within 40 days. 40 days. It's going to be over. And lo and behold, instead of the people killing him, what do they do? They repent. Not only do they repent, but their king repents. And not only does their king repent, but their animals repent. Did you ever notice that? It says that their animals were too fast and to put on sackcloth. That's how you repented. So this was such a hardcore revival in Nineveh that even Fido was on his face repenting to the Lord. This is not what was supposed to happen. This was not what was supposed to happen according to Jonah's worldview. And it says that the Lord or that God saw their deeds and they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared upon them. Did Jonah get happy? No, he got angry. And he prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, was it not that I said to you this while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, the one who relents concerning, concerning calamity. So he, he lets it on that he didn't want to go to Nineveh, not just because he was scared from his life, but because he was scared because he knew God's character. He was scared that God would actually act out his character of having grace and mercy and compassion because that's who our God really truly is. If you want to know who our God is, you look to Yeshua. And Yeshua was doing what? He was walking around having compassion on people. And those Pharisees that we met there, they were like Jonah. They were not happy about it. These people should not be shown compassion. These people should not be shown mercy. So Jonah, it's kind of interesting because God's like, I'm not going to destroy them, but he still thinks it's on. So he goes eastward. Going east is never a good thing. And he gets up on this high hill and he sits down there. He's got his, his lawn chair. He's got his bucket of popcorn, his big soda, and his 3D glasses on. He's like, yes, bring it on. Burn, people. Nothing happens. These people were sinners. These people deserved it. They're supposed to burn. Nothing happens. This, this gourd grows up and it's shading him. He's like, ah, God's about to do it. He's given me a good, nice shade so I can enjoy the show. Nothing happens. That gourd dies, eaten by a worm. And God says to him this, why are you angry? Why are you so upset? Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals. Should I not have compassion? Now, if you were to take a selective reading of the Torah, you might say, no, you shouldn't. 
because these are, this is a nation outside of the land of Israel, and we are supposed to go to them and tell them either you surrender or we destroy you, and if you surrender, we're going to enslave you. But they didn't read the bigger picture of the Bible. They got focused on one little text and their interpretation of how that text should be that they missed the picture. Jonah missed the picture here and the Pharisees mixed the picture. So why are they so upset? Because God's not, I mean, Yeshua's going around, he's healing a lot of Israelites. This, this man that we read about here, whose hand is withered, he, he's in the synagogue. He's obviously probably some sort of Jewish person, right? Why are they upset about this? Because of their theology. If you look in John chapter 9, there's an episode where a man was born blind. He's born blind. And Yeshua's disciples come up to him and they say, who committed the sin? Was it this man or was it his parents? That's very telling for us today. This is how they understood the world. If you were born blind, if you were crippled, or if you became blind, if you became sick, if you became ill, why was it? You must have sinned. God is punishing you. You're getting what you deserve. That was their mindset. Now, of course, in John 9, uh, Yeshua corrects this mindset and says, this guy wasn't born blind because of any sin. It was, it's for the glory of God. And in a different place, in Luke 13, he talks about the Tower of Siloam falling and killing people. And he says, were these people any more wicked than people who survived? No. Just because someone dies, just because someone is sick, just because someone can't walk, is blind, or whatever it is, does not necessarily mean that they are getting what they deserved. Now, of course, there are some cases with this. If you choose a lifestyle uh, of, of drugs and you, you, know, you get uh, an HIV infection from sharing needles, that is a result of your sin. But we can still have compassion on those people. But you gotta realize to the Pharisees, you don't have compassion on sinners. They're getting what they deserved. They had that same view of them as Jonah did. These Assyrians... They're wicked, evil people. Look at how much pain and suffering and, and everything that they've caused to us. They're getting what they deserved. Pharisees did not accept Yeshua as Messiah. Sadducees didn't. Now, of course, there are some of these groups who did, but as a, a large whole, many of them did not accept him as Messiah. Have you ever wondered why? Why didn't they? Why did they think that he was the wrong Messiah? What did Messiah mean? That's where we really need to start because we throw out the word Messiah or when we've been growing up, we, you know, we, were, we knew the word Christ, right? And we, we throw out Christ so much and you attach it to Jesus so much, you know, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. It becomes his last name, right? He's Jesus Christ. His parents were Joseph and Mary Christ. David Christ was his great, 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 great grandfather. Um, and he, he comes from this long line of these people, and we, we miss the real impact of what Christ or Messiah means. You see, when you go to the Hebrew Bible, you really don't find 
but maybe one or two mentions of the Messiah, right? They'll be talk about Messiah because Messiah means anointed, but this concept of the Messiah is something that really developed in the world of uh, around probably first century, really. I mean, may, maybe a little bit into the first century BC, but really around the time of Yeshua. Now, of course, when we turn to the Hebrew Bible, we see different terms, the coming one, the branch, all of these things, but they, they really don't use that word Messiah. So what does Messiah mean? Messiah means king. To them, they were looking for a king. Why? Why would they want a king? They already had Herod. They had Caesar. Why do they want a king? You see, about 490 years before Yeshua comes on the scene, the Israelites had been committing sin and they got sent into exile in Babylon. And because of their sins, they're led away, they lose their land, and the prophet Jeremiah prophesied to them, because of your sins, 70 years are decreed. Everyone familiar with this story, right? 70 years in exile. Now, after 70 years, the Persians take control of Babylon, King Cyrus, issues the decree, freeing them from exile. And it's interesting because in the book of Isaiah, King Cyrus is called the Messiah. Interesting. I believe that's Isaiah 45, but when it mentions Cyrus, you'll notice it talks about um, Cyrus is the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. They get back to the land. Only about 10% of them return, by the way. You don't have, I mean, this is where the whole book of Esther comes from. You realize that when you read Esther, it's after they've been told they can return to the land. And rather than them going westward to the land, if you look where Susa is, Susa is east. Like they went the opposite direction. Ba uh, Daniel, Daniel stays in Babylon. And this becomes important because the book of Daniel really tells us what's going on. You see, Daniel chapter nine, that wonderful prayer, he's praying this prayer. And if you notice at the beginning, Daniel chapter nine, verse one and two, he starts saying, I, re I was, you know, I had my abacus out and I was doing the calculations and I realized that 70 years had expired. 70 years is up, the exile's ending. And so what does he do? He prays to the Lord for forgiveness of their sins because they were in exile for their sins and therefore the end of the exile would mean their sins were forgiven. Their sins were forgiven. You get all the way down to this beautiful prayer of Daniel's, and then this angel appears to him and said, you know what, Daniel? You got it wrong. Not 70 years, but 70 weeks. 70 weeks of years. And this is where we get our number 490 from. Right? So here's the thing that a lot of us weren't taught growing up in the Gospels is that in the first century, Israel still recognized themselves as being in exile. They were in the land, but they were still in exile. They were not in geographical exile anymore, but they were in political 
and theological exile. They were back in the land, they built the temple, but the presence of God never returned to the second temple. And furthermore, they were not free. They were subject to various empires, right? The Seleucids, the Romans, etc. And so for the exile to end, God needed to return and throw off the foreign oppressors. That's what the exodus should look like. That's what the Messiah was needed for. The Messiah was the one, the true king, who was going to come and defeat Israel's enemies. He was going to slaughter the Romans. He was going to wipe them out. They were going to get what they deserved. And so we had many um, Messiah-like people rise up. We had the Maccabees. The Maccabees, what did they do? They threw off the foreign rule and they restored the temple. That didn't work out so well for them. It, they, they turned so corrupt, like I mentioned before, that less than 100 years after that, Alexander Janus launches a civil war against the Pharisees. And then they had Judas the Galilean. He was around 5 AD, I believe, or 5 BC. Many would-be messiahs rose up and every single one of them attacked the Romans. They tried to fight off the Romans and they got crushed. They got crushed. But that's what the messiah had to do. One of these days, a messiah was going to come and actually lead a war and win a war. But it wasn't happening. It's kind of funny, right? Remember how I mentioned 490 days? They did what we like to do today. They picked the end date and then calculated back when those 490 years began in order to proclaim that this guy was the Messiah. That's, it started with Judas Maccabee and the, the Maccabean Revolt and all the way up to Bar Kokhba. They would adjust the beginning date in order to make that 490 years work for their would-be Messiah. And of course, that didn't work out. So we get to, to Matthew 11, and John, John was the forerunner of the Messiah, right? We read in Malachi chapter four, it says that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I'm gonna send my servant Elisha, or Elijah, sorry. And Yeshua says, if you believe it, John was Elijah, he's preparing, he's the forerunner. And John seems to have recognized that he was the forerunner. But now he's in prison. He's imprisoned by Herod. This isn't supposed to happen. He was supposed to be the one who helped launch the revolt, not be imprisoned. And so you see this kind of moment of questioning come. Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? John, like many of the people of faith, started to wonder what's going on. It reminds me a lot of Star Wars Episode 3. You didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> Star Wars Episode 3 is really interesting because it's actually recorded and everyone sitting in the theater watching it had already seen Episode 4, 5, and 6, right? They already knew how the story was going to end. And you gotta realize that Matthew's audience... Also, when they're reading Matthew's gospel, 
they already know how the story's going to end. And so, can I propose to you that John's question isn't just John's question, it's his audience's question. And it even comes to be a question today. There's a lot of people wondering, hey, Y2K passed, why didn't you come back for Y2K? All right, uh, all these dates come to pass and then nothing happens. And that seed of doubt starts getting its own. Are you the one to come? What's going on? And Yeshua answers them, he answers John something very important. Oh, sorry, I was going on with episode three. So episode three, right? You've got this scene at the end where, uh, uh, what's his face? The Obi-Wan, thank you. He's fighting Anakin. He's fighting Anakin. He thought that Anakin was it. And so he has this moment where he goes, we thought you were the chosen one. You were supposed to destroy the Sith and bring back everything good. What's going on? That's John's question I would propose to you, and that's a question a lot of people throughout the ages have, have res wrestled with. And it was especially troubling in the first century. He was the chosen one. He was the one who was supposed to destroy the Romans, not get killed by them. He was supposed to slaughter our enemies, not forgive them. See, sometimes we get into that mentality. Oh, Yeshua's gonna come and he's gonna wipe out ISIS. Yeshua's gonna come and he's gonna wipe out all the Catholics. Yeshua's gonna come and wipe out, fill in whatever denomination that your denomination was against. We have this mindset that's been going on for thousands of years. And the mindset is, we're it, God loves us, and everyone else is going you know where. How many of you read the book of Revelation? Few people. In the book of Revelation, you have this really interesting description of this new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, and it's the place where all of God's people are going to dwell. And in our Bibles, it reads that it was like 1,500-something miles. If you look at the Greek, it's 12,000 cubits, by 12,000 cubits, by 12,000 cubits. That's about roughly two-thirds the size of the moon. Okay? Two-thirds the size of the moon. And we're told that in my father's house, there are many mansions. So we connect this to the New Jerusalem, right? So if you were to have a mansion, let's just say that God gave you a 10,000 square foot house, but it had two levels. So you had a total of 20,000 square feet. How many of you would like that? A few of you. Anyone want anything bigger? Is this okay? Okay, good. All right, we're all on board here. How many... 20,000 square foot mansions would fit in the New Jerusalem. Anyone ever done the math on that one? Somewhere around two quadrillion. Two quadrillion. That's a lot of mansions. Sometimes we get this mindset that we're it and that everyone else is out. And we start to get this idea like Jonah that God's just going to destroy these people. We get this idea like the Pharisees. These people don't deserve mercy. Look at what they've done. Look at what they've done. 
Yeshua answers that sort of a question with a parable. So he tells this parable about a wheat field. And this wheat field was sown with seed, but during the night, the enemy comes in, he sows tares among the wheat. And in the morning, they find out what's going on, and the the servants are a little bit freaked out. They're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the master says this, let them grow up together. He says, let them grow up together because if you go out there right now and you start trying to identify the tares and pluck them out, you're going to rip out some of the wheat as well. You see, we know more than likely what they're talking about is Darnell, which looks exactly like wheat. You can't tell the difference with the naked eye. The only way that you can tell the difference is that when it comes to harvest time, the wheat bears fruit, which weighs it down. But don't touch the tares right now. Can I propose to you that there is a great interpretation that says, ah, this is talking about the end times, but it also speaks to us right here and now. Don't worry yourself about tearing out the tares. Leave them be. Our job as believers, our job as followers of of Yeshua the Messiah is to have compassion and mercy on sinners, on people who are lame, who the world is saying they're getting what they deserve. We are not called to say, oh, well, you don't do this right, so you're not in covenant. By the way, did you know that the phrase in covenant appears nowhere in the Bible? You can't be in covenant. You can either have a covenant made with you, you can break covenant, you can be faithful to a covenant, you can restore a covenant, but you can't be in covenant or out of covenant. Those are not biblical terms, yet we see them used all the time because we're so consumed with figuring out who's in and out, who's going to heaven, who's going to be part of the resurrection. We're so consumed with that that we unwittingly make ourselves into the Pharisees. We fail to recognize God's mercy, his compassion, his love on not just the righteous, but on the sinners, on the tax collectors. You gotta realize that the tax collectors weren't like the IRS. Like, how many of you like the IRS? Oh no, no one does, right? unless you maybe are IRS. These weren't just the IRS. These weren't just people taking your money. They were taking your money and they were giving it to the Romans. These were Roman collaborators. These were people who were furthering Caesar's empire. Yeshua didn't just eat with them. It says that he lounged with them, which means that he had a party with them. Yeshua was partying with the worst of the worst. And Yeshua wasn't just doing these things in order to fill his time until he would die and resurrect. You see, we've focused so much on that death, burial, and resurrection 
that we forgot that that's just the end of the ministry or the end part of the story of the ministry. I shouldn't say the end of the ministry because the ministry should be going on. Everything that he does is for our example. It's for how we are to live, live our lives. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. You guys are workers. You're supposed to be getting out there in whatever capacity God has called you. This doesn't mean we all do it the same way, right? John had a very different type of message than Yeshua did, but they both had a message from the Lord. We're called to get out there, to do something, to, to further advance the kingdom, to live our lives the way that Yeshua did, and that's through having compassion on people that society deems as outcasts. People that not just society deems as outcasts, but people who religious systems and religious leaders and religious people deem as outcasts. I heard something really, really powerful lately, or recently, and it had a really big impact on me, and someone was talking about what is the purpose of the church? And I really connected with this because I, I work in an intensive care unit in a hospital. And they said that the church is not supposed to be a place filled with just the righteous people. The church is like a hospital. The church should be filled with people who are sinners, who are struggling with things, who are sick, this, is, this building is where people come to get healed, not to get patted on the back. How many of you need healing in some way in your life? This is what this place is for. You come into the hospital, and, and this becomes an issue in our society because our society has gone one step further, and they said, you know what? Let's put the sick up on the pulpit. How many of you, if you walked into a hospital and your, your doctor was like coughing up phlegm into a, a napkin and said, hey, what's, what's wrong with you? What would you do? Oh, nothing. I'm just gonna drag my broken leg out of the hospital. Just wheel me out and go in somewhere else. So it's not compromised to welcome the sick into the church, into the congregation, into the synagogue, whatever term we wanna use. That's not compromise. That's where they should be. That's where they come for healing. That's where they come to find the people who are like Yeshua, who have compassion and not judgment on them. We keep ourselves pure, but like Yeshua, when the sick touch us, we don't become impure. Our pureness transfers to them. We bring healing to them. Amen? Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our king, our shield, and our priest, we praise you and we thank you. We uplift your name for sending us your son to be the true image of God, to show us the way that you truly want us to live out our lives, to show us the way to truly live out the Torah according to your standard and not according to our reading of it. Father, I, I pray that this building, this congregation becomes even more a place of healing, a place that lifts up your name, a place that follows in your son's footsteps. I pray that if anything that I say it here today is not your will, that it fall upon deaf lips or deaf ears. Father, may the, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts always be pleasing before you. 
Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you guys very much. If I could have just a minute, I was going to mention on the back table, I put out some business cards for if you want to get engaged in my ministry. Um, website is rooted in Torah. There's cards out there to help you remember. So thank you guys so much for being an attentive audience. Shabbat Shalom. If we could all rise, please. And the Lord spoke unto Moshe and said, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is the way you shall bless the children of Yisrael. Yivorechecha May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Instead of building more walls, yeah. let's build more bridges. Yeah. Let's build more bridges. Yeah.